First off, the announcement on the proposed fusion of TVNZ and RNZ into a public media behemoth. What does the minister, what did he, what did he say? Yes, that's right. Fusion. I'm not sure that's the right word. Both RNZ and TVNZ are to be disintegrated. And now we're one step closer to those uh, disintegrated masses fusing together and emerging, glistening and reborn into a beautiful new public media entity. Chris Farfoy, he appointed eight members to the catchly named Strong Public Media Business Case Governance Board, and they'll essentially be putting together a business case for the new public media entity. Who's on the board? So chairwoman, we have... You might remember her from the last government, NZ First Deputy Leader Tracy Martin. We have Glenn Scanlon. He's the BSA chair at the moment. Former MediaWorks Chief Executive Michael Anderson. Uh, there are others. Bailey Mackey, who's a really, um, I guess, a prominent reality TV producer, uh, the founder of Pangor Productions. <laughs> Dr. Trisha Dunleavy. She's at Victor, Victor, Victoria University of Wellington. Media academic uh, Sandra Kailahi former journalist at TVNZ's Tangata Pacifica, uh, John Quirk. He's the former chair and director of state-owned transmission company, Cordia, and uh, broadcasting and technology consultant, William Earle. Well, it sounds like a strong panel. Does it have its critics? Yeah, it does have a few. I've seen a little bit of feedback on social media. Now, Annabelle Lee Mather, she's a producer of the Hui, she noted that uh, the board is notably short on young people. It's like the government doesn't know any smart young people. I presume that some young people are meant to listen and consume the content from this new public media entity, but they won't get a say in how it's shaped as things stand. Uh, I mean, that's, it might be a little bit unfair to Bailey Mackey, who's at least in his early 40s, but uh, I'm not sure that some people would call that young exactly. Now, Newsroom founder Tim Murphy, he also said, the handbrake is back on. And you might remember uh, the, the political party New Zealand first. Now, they were blamed for uh, a lot of the inactivity of the last government and Martin was, of course, the deputy leader. She didn't exactly have a sterling resume, resume uh, as her as the Minister for Children. Uh, Oranga Tamariki had some scandals in the last term, so there's some criticism there. And National Party's media spokesperson, Melissa Lee, she hasn't criticised the appointment so much as just the lack of what well, the amount of time this is all taking this was announced early last year it's been on hold there hasn't been a lot of news about it in the meantime there's been stalled projects rnz's charter was meant to be reviewed that hasn't happened you might remember some controversial plans for a youth station those are on ice as well uh, none of that's really happening while we wait for this new uh, setup to emerge so when is the new setup expected to be formed Original deadline was 2023. Now, Chris Farfoy wouldn't commit to that, but he did say that he wanted uh, it to be in place before the next election, which is in 2023. So maybe the same thing. I guess that's the ambition, to have something in place before potential change of government and national not exactly as keen on this as Labour is. Labour hasn't had a great record on keeping its deadlines, though. If you think Kiwi Build or Auckland Light Rail, both delayed. We'll see whether this particular project fares any better. Interesting. Okay, 
Next up, you're wanting to give a, a small hat tip to a reporter for an important story out this morning. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't have written small. It's kind of a big hat tip. I really thought this was an important story. RNZ's Anusha Bradley, she covered an ACC change, which has seen fewer women who suffer injuries during birth, particularly perineal tears, uh, getting covered by ACC. So what used to happen is that 30 women per month who suffered these tears were given ACC fully funded coverage for their treatment. Now that's dropped to four per month. And essentially that's because ACC has decided it'll only fund treatment for the injury if the tear is caused in a treatment injury or from a lack of treatment. Basically, it means that I could mildly sprain my ankle at basketball tomorrow morning and I'd get fully funded care for as long as I liked until I'm totally healed. But a woman who injures herself, devastating injuries that are suffered by a great many women, they, during birth, she's less likely to get uh, fully funded care. And that seems a little off, to say the least. And Anusha Bradley in this story um, comes from RNZ's investigative unit, doesn't it? Investigations are getting boosts across a few media organisations right now, aren't they? That's right. So this is an example of a story that takes a bit of digging and a bit of care, and that's a really good thing that can come out of public media funding, that we can fund these uh, types of reporting that don't necessarily, I guess, make for the best business case all the time. Having said that, the Herald has just reformed its investigative unit after quietly disbanding it a few years ago, and the new investigative unit includes some familiar names. We're thinking Carolyn Meng-Yi. She's a, a, able to secure a very news-breaking interviews. She's renowned for it. David Fisher, Matt Nippet, Jared Savage. There's others, and it's a lineup of pretty heavy hitters, and I'll be looking forward to seeing what they churn out. Speaking of tuning out. Probably not a good segue, but anyway, we'll do it. This morning on Morning Report, a controversial interview, one that's memorable. Yeah, controversial, I guess. You, It hasn't uh, received universally glowing reviews, but you can't receive only glowing reviews. So Judith Collins appeared on Morning Report for her weekly showdown with Susie Ferguson this morning, and suffice to say, it didn't go great. So here's a snippet from the opening salvo. Is there anywhere, though, Ms Collins, is there anywhere apart from New Zealand in the 80s that you're talking about? I'm talking about the fact is that New Zealand has um, has tried this before, and I already know to lose, uh, Susie that it is impossible. But do you have other examples from overseas? Well, look, Susie, I understand uh, economics. If we have landlords already being bashed by the government. We have investor, mum and dad investors. But Ms Collins, I'm asking you for an example. So that's Susie Ferguson asking Judith Collins for an example of a place where rent controls haven't worked. And it went, <laughs> oh, that's just a snippet of it. It just went on and on and on like that. It was the same question essentially being asked in different forms for the interview's first three minutes. And people on both sides of the political aisle have had You'll be surprised at this. Very different takes about this interview. For those on the left, it was pretty devastating for Judith Collins, who came into it unprepared. She didn't have this example that Susie Ferguson was asking for. Uh, She came off as patronising and unprepared. For those on the right, it was a pretty hectoring and overly scornful display from Ferguson. Now, they say that she was essentially being 
biased or that she has a bias against National and Collins in particular. It's pretty hard to say whether that's the case, but I think what's probably going on is there's a, a bit of media bloodlust at, at play here. So Collins in recent days has been hammering rent control as an attack line against the government. And she said that the government has to rule out rent control. It hasn't worked anywhere else. And given that, she really could have come prepared with an example of the places elsewhere that it hasn't worked, like it's been in place in lots of places around the world, Berlin, New York notably. Uh, she wasn't armed with that info, and I think probably Ferguson honed in on that weakness. And that's not terribly unusual for Breakfast News Radio. You might remember that former Labour leader Andrew Little went through some tough grillings, had his kind of sweetmeats harvested on Morning Report a few times when he was struggling in the late days of his tenure. And it's not uh, grilling Collins in this way is not really unique to Ferguson at the moment either. She's not the only reporter laying into the national leader. Tover O'Brien recently cut into a News Hub at Six bulletin with a live cross on how the national leader's MPs were leaking against her. Now, on the other hand, when you've only got seven minutes for an interview, asking the same question for three minutes straight had better really justify, <laughs> you better have a real good justification for doing that. And I'm not sure that this point was so devastating to Judith Collins's overall argument that it warranted that kind of treatment. Maybe it would have been better to just note it and note that there's no, there's no clear answer coming and move on. Did they get to talk about anything else? Did they get to move on? Yeah, they did. They did. So the next four minutes of the interview was spent talking about National's health spokesman, Shane Retty, uh, deputy leader as well. And here's a snippet from that section. Presumably it would be a good idea, partly because um, I understand his age puts him in the higher risk bracket. Also, like you say, he is a doctor. He's and presumably... It... <laughs> no, but in terms, of, in terms of Fumari, the age is at a different limit. Um, and also, why is that funny? Now, what Susie Ferguson was saying there was just incorrect. Older Māori and Pacifica people living with their whānau do get prioritised for the vaccine rollout, but there's no specific lowered age for Māori people. And Reti, anyway, is a fit 57-year-old man. He doesn't fit the criteria, so that's just false. Uh, Ferguson went on to ask if Retty might be hesitant to take the vaccine. Now, this might not have been intentional, but that word vaccine, hesitant, has been used to euphemistically describe people who might have anti-vax beliefs. And evoking that is pretty questionable, given Retty is a really respected healthcare professional. He's always said that he will take the vaccine when his turn comes. And actually today he did accept the government's invitation to take the vaccine early. And maybe it was a slip up, but I think Collins would have some cause for complaint over the insinuation that Dr. Shane Retty is somehow hesitant to take the vaccine. He'd only said that he wanted to wait his turn. So there might be cause for complaint there and also about the factual inaccuracy about when Māori can take the vaccine. For the National Party, bias in public media is a hot topic at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So this is not the only time there's been a flare-up about apparent bias in public media recently. And uh, Melissa Lee hammered the topic at a select committee 
hearing last month, along with her colleagues, Louise Upston and Simon O'Connor. And uh, in that case, she was grilling Kevin Kenrick of TVNZ, Paul Thompson of RNZ. Uh, Lee was saying, you're going to get this new $55 million journalism fund for investigative journalism. All these commercial media organizations, along with you, are going to be able to access it. Given that your money's coming from the government, how are you going to be able to be biased, uh, unbiased in your coverage uh, when that might, in her eyes, sort of cut off your pot of gold, cut off your funding source, risk your funding source? Uh, so that, that was the example there. But there are just more general concerns that were emerging, especially out of Louise Upston, about something cancel culture. And she wondered whether RNZ would be willing to print views perceived as politically incorrect. When my boss, Colin Peacock, later interviewed Melissa Lee, uh, uh, she actually struggled to provide specific examples of media bias, but there is just a general vibe that right-wing right views are getting shut out. What do you think about the perceptions of media bias? Uh, Public I'm, media bias? Uh, is there a difference? Yeah, uh, well, there's, there's a perception on the right that RNZ is, you know, they call it red radio. There's part of this that is just the nature of being in opposition and being in difficult straits and having leadership questions and having received a very bad election shellacking. And, of course, there is just more negativity and it's hard to get media cut through. So there's an element of that there. And I remember when Labour was in dire straits, it had similar complaints. Oh, the media's biased against us. Actually, perhaps the media coverage in part at least just reflects your not exactly dominant position in the political discourse right now. On a more zoomed out level, I, my perhaps rose-tinted take is that asking whether the media is featuring enough right-wing and left-wing views is kind of the wrong question. And we should be asking whether reporting is accurate regardless of how that's perceived politically. And that's not to say that reporting is apolitical. I'm under no illusions. Everything is political. I get that. But what we've seen in the states, especially recently, is the dangers of just quoting a right-wing view and a left-wing view and calling it balance. Just the assumption that somehow if you get uh, a right-wing view and a left-wing view, the truth will be somewhere in the middle and you've done enough that way. And that creates these false equivalencies, and especially in Trump's uh, during Trump's tenure. You had these minor slip-ups on the Democratic side reported in roughly equivalent terms to these kind of huge Trumpian breaches of Democratic norms. And the journalism professor, Jay Rosen, he called that symmetric reporting of asymmetric realities, which is a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of an academic way of putting it. Basically, journalists should try and report what they see as true, as best as they can see it, regardless of how that's perceived Politically, it's just a much simpler way of doing things, and it's not just about quoting one person from each side and calling it a day. You also <laughs> wanted tonight to note some recent reporting around MediaWorks launching an inquiry into the conduct of its employees. What's the background to this? Yeah, so this story starts with, I think, a couple of things happening concurrently. You have uh, a social media account broadcasting allegations about employees at major radio stations in New Zealand. Now, these allegations were anonymised, but there are only really two major radio networks in New Zealand. So the companies, uh, the stations being targeted were pretty easy to figure out. At the same time, some of the employees whose testimonies were being featured on this social media account were going to stuff's Me Too 
editor Alison Moore. And these are basically allegations of misconduct, sexual harassment, sometimes assault at these uh, radio stations. And since then, MediaWorks has employed Maria Jew QC to carry out an investigation into the conduct of its staff. And as a result of that, just the, just the inquiry being announced, one radio host has already resigned. Really? Yeah, so one radio host has already has been scrubbed from MediaWorks' uh, promotion with promotional re- materials and resigned effective immediately ahead of even due reporting back or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, take from that what you will. Obviously, there is kind of an admission that there is at least some sort of problem, some sort of issue here. There is some validity uh, to what Maria Jew will be looking into. And there's also a new chief executive settling into the role there. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting timing. So Cam Wallace, uh, formerly in New Zealand, uh, exec, he signed on as MediaWorks chief executive in January. You might remember one of the first things that he did in this role was dismiss John Banks after a, a highly questionable racist call was broadcast and John Banks essentially just agreed with the caller and expanded on what they had to say. Cam Wallace, one of the first things he had to do was say that this is unacceptable and John Banks will never appear on Magic Talk or a MediaWorks station as long as he's chief executive. So that, that was a crisis in the, just in the first you know month of his tenure. And then Sean Plunk had also agreed to resign as well after questions were raised about some of the stuff that he had broadcast at Magic Talk. Uh, Now this is the latest thing to pop up here. It's been a very eventful few months for Cam Wallace. And he actually appeared on the podcast that the spin-offs Duncan Grieve hosts. It's called The Fold. And he talked about some of this stuff recently. This is just one clip from that podcast. I'm very, very focused on making sure that anyone who has any issues whatsoever feel that there's the right environment to confidentially come forward. And when we see issues, we will investigate them, and we are investigating some at the moment, and we will deal with those. So, you know, there'll be no stone left unturned to make sure that we deal with historic issues and making sure we have a really complementary and modern culture moving forward. That's uh, that's non-negotiable for me in this role. There you have it. That's MediaWorks Chief Executive Cam Wallace saying no stone will be left, uh, left unturned to uncover historical cases, uh, incidents of abuse. Now, there are some questions about whether that will really be the case. Now, as I understand it, the terms of reference, this is from good sources, uh, the terms of reference on this inquiry only date back to 2018. So that's not exactly historical. And some of the people that are have had their testimonies broadcast uh, both by Alison Moore and on the social media accounts say that it doesn't delve far enough into the past and that the fact that it only goes to 2018 may obscure a bunch of really legitimate grievances. And they point to stations like The Rock, which has had a really long-standing culture, which is very male-focused, male-dominated. Duncan Grieve, I think, called it misogynistic a number of times on that podcast, The Fold, and he didn't get a lot of pushback on that. So there's this idea that maybe these terms of reference have been set too narrow. It's hoped that that's not the case, but uh, Alison Moore, she actually said to Gavin Ellis recently, there's a common ruse that often leaves complainants devastated because they hear independent investigation, they breathe a huge sigh of relief, and they throw themselves into the process, and then when their report comes back, they end up bewildered 
that it does not look anything like they expected and it's really traumatizing and that's because of narrow terms of reference which don't allow these investigators to report on everything that actually took place. Gavin Ellis called for Cam Wallace to print these terms of reference publicly and be really open about them. We'll see whether that actually happens. Watch the space. Hayden Denell, watch the space. Thank you very much. Midweek Media Watch, there's always a lot going on.